The communities which claim to worship the one God of all creation who became flesh in the person of Jesus are the harlot, the great prostitute, described in the New Testament book of Revelation. Is this conjecture? No. Permit me some time to explain this interpretation and to explain the road ahead for those who choose faithfulness to the one God of all creation, who has been revealed to us through the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Hebrew Bible and the apostolic teachings of the New Testament. To begin, God has provided a poignant parable through the prophet Ezekiel that helps to set the biblical context for the description of the harlot described in Revelation chapter 17. God's parable has been preserved for us in Ezekiel chapter 16, and it begins with the story of a baby girl who was left exposed by her parents. In the ancient world, if a child was unwanted, it was often left outside to die. God said he found such a child, and he took her into his household. He cleaned her, fed her, raised her, and protected her. And when she was old enough, he offered her marriage. That part of the story sounds immoral in our day, of course, but in the ancient Near Eastern context of Ezekiel, what the parable was communicating was that God had offered Israel a permanent legal place in his household. Marriage to a male member of the family was the ancient way of adopting a woman into the household. In the New Testament, this same intention of God will be explained as the betrothing of the people of God to his Son. But the concept of the Trinity, that the one God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had not yet been revealed to Israel in Ezekiel's time. And the purpose of God, the Son, to become flesh in the person of Jesus, also, though prophesied, was not yet understood. So marriage to God himself was the way God revealed his purposes for Israel through Ezekiel. In response to this offer of God, Israel repeatedly committed adultery. God has spoken the following through Ezekiel, beginning in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 15. And just as a warning, what we're about to read from Ezekiel is quite graphic. Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and became unfaithful because of your fame. And you poured out your obscene practices on every passerby to whom it might be tempting. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and committed prostitution on them, which should not come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels, made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images, so that you might commit prostitution with them. Then you took your colorfully woven cloth and covered them, and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Furthermore, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your obscene practices a trivial matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them to idols by making them pass through the fire. And besides all your abominations and obscene practices, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Then it came about after all your wickedness. Woe to you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every public square. You built yourself a high place at the beginning of every street and made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every passerby and multiplied your obscene practice. You also committed prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your obscene practice to provoke me to anger. So behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and cut back your rations. And I turned you over to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who are ashamed of your outrageous conduct. 
Moreover, you committed prostitution with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You committed prostitution with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your obscene practice with the land of merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this you were not satisfied. How feverish is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold prostitute. When you build your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every public square, in spurning a prostitute's fee you were not like a prostitute. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you give your gifts to all your lovers and lavish favors on them so that they will come to you from every direction for your obscene practices. So it is the opposite for you from those women in your obscene practices in that you are not approached for prostitution and in the fact that you pay a prostitute's fee and no fee is paid to you. So you are the opposite. From where do these accusations come? Israel had long wanted to be acceptable to her neighbors. One might even say that she wanted to be the envy of the ancient Near East. That desire was first expressed in the foothills of Mount Sinai when Israel made a golden calf, called it Yahweh, and worshipped it in the fashion they had learned during their four-plus centuries in Egypt. It was expressed again in the days of the prophet and judge Samuel when Israel asked for a king like the other nations. And in the days of King Solomon, Israel reached the pinnacle of her desirability as leaders and envoys from around the world visited Israel to marvel at her wealth and to sit at the feet of her preternaturally wise king. Throughout the remainder of Israel's history, the people had longed to be envied. And this is the heart of God's accusation through Ezekiel. Israel had taken the great blessings of God and had used them to increase their desirability among the nations. In fact, Israel so wanted to be acceptable to the nations around her that she adopted their ways of worship and incorporated them into her own worship of Yahweh. It seems in many seasons, Israel thought of this behavior as helpful to God's aims. After all, if the God of Israel is the God of the whole earth, and if Israel is intended eventually to rule all the nations as so many of Israel's prophets had proclaimed, then it would seem wise to emphasize points of agreement between Israel and the nations, while at the same time enticing the nations to loyalty to God by displaying the blessings God had bestowed on his people. God, through Ezekiel, has condemned all of this as adultery, as faithlessness to the covenantal agreement God and Israel made at Mount Sinai. God's judgment on Israel was to give her over to the lovers she had chosen, that is, to hand her over to the jurisdiction of the nations. And so God allowed the nations of Assyria and later Babylon to conquer Israel, to force her into subservience to them, and to scatter the people of Israel into exile. From God's perspective, this is what Israel wanted, to be indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. So God gave Israel to those to whom she had been generationally giving herself. What then does this have to do with followers of Yahweh, both Jewish and Christian, after the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus? The ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist which preceded him were calls to repentance, calls to return to faithfulness to the God of Israel. As the Gospel of Matthew has explained in chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This happened so that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. 
From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Gospel according to Luke has preserved the story of Jesus' return to Nazareth after this move to Capernaum. This episode, from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, helps us to understand further how Jesus understood the heart of his ministry. This is Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding region. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were intently directed at him. Now he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The passage that Jesus read can be found today in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. In that context, Isaiah was proclaiming a future year of jubilee in which God would forgive the debts of his people, gather them from exile, and establish them again as members of his household. The covenant of Sinai had required the Israelites to set aside every 50th year as a year of jubilee. The year has been described in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 10 through 13 in the following way. So you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. And you shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor harvest its aftergrowth, nor gather grapes from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. The year of Jubilee was a year of release, in which the land would rest, the people who had entered into indentured servitude because of debts would be released and their debts forgiven, and all ancestral land would be returned to its original owners. Isaiah had prophesied that such a year had been proclaimed when God would return his people to their land, cancel their debts, and establish them again. Jesus proclaimed, that day in the synagogue in Nazareth, that he himself was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Through the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, God was recalling the exiles of faith from all nations on earth, both Jewish and Gentile. Through Jesus, all those who wish to become part of the household of God by faith in Jesus and betrothal to the Son have been welcomed to return. Jesus inaugurated a year of jubilee, and many have returned to God in the centuries that have followed, both from the exiles of Israel and from the exiles of the nations who were exiled long before Israel at the Tower of Babel. These exiles, from both Israel and the Gentile nations, who shared faith in the one God who had revealed himself to Abraham and had become flesh in the person of Jesus, came to be called Christians, and their community came to be known as the Church. But sadly, like the nation of Israel before them, Christians too soon became adulterous. After centuries of struggle and persecution and earnest striving to remain as exiles in the world and yet distinct from it, the Christian communities gave in to their desire to be acceptable and desirable to Gentile nations. The Christian Church sought and embraced legal endorsement by the Roman Emperor Constantine through the Edict of Milan in AD 313. And then in AD 380, 
through the Edict of Thessalonica under Emperor Theodosius, Nicene Christianity sought and became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Like Israel before her, the Church had now aligned itself with the nation of the earth, and the Christian community's longing to be the envy of the nations of the earth reemerged as well. This can be seen rudimentarily in the church hierarchy soon adorning themselves in the pomp and regalia of the ancient Roman emperors and priests. And though present long before, by the 1400s the Christian community's return to the behaviors criticized by God through Ezekiel had reached full blossom. Barbara Tuckman, in her book The March of Folly describes the situation in the following way. Reestablished in Rome, the popes became creatures of the Renaissance, outshining the princes in patronage of the arts, believing like them that the glories of painting and sculpture, music and letters ornamented their courts and reflected their munificence. Through visible beauties and grandeur, they believed the papacy would be dignified and the church exert its hold upon the people. Nicholas V, who has been called the first Renaissance pope, made the belief explicit on his deathbed in 1455 urging the cardinals to continue the renovation of Rome. He said, To create solid and stable conviction, there must be something that appeals to the eye. A faith sustained only by doctrine will never be anything but feeble and vacillating. If the authority of the Holy See were visibly displayed in majestic buildings, all the world would accept and revere it. Noble edifices, combining taste and beauty with imposing proportions, would immensely exalt the chair of St. Peter. Tuckman concludes by saying the church had come a long way from Peter the fisherman. Martin Luther saw the connection between these behaviors and the harlot described in the book of Revelation. Luther's German Bible included an image representative of the Pope riding on the back of the beast. But this lust to be desirable to the world and envied by the nations has not been reserved to Roman Catholicism alone. Eastern Orthodoxy has exalted art and artistic expression as well, through iconography and ornate worship spaces, and Protestantism, too, has long sought to be appealing to the worldly and envied by their neighbors. The tradition of liberal Protestantism, beginning with Schleiermacher, has sought to make Christian theology appealing to its cultural detractors, and the contemporary emphasis on seeker-sensitive worship, rock concert-like production value, and simple doctrine-like teaching remains consistent with Pope Nicholas V's conviction. To create solid and stable conviction, there must be something that appeals to the eye. A faith sustained only by doctrine will never be anything but feeble and vacillating. If the authority of the Holy See were visibly displayed in majestic buildings, all the world would accept and revere it. To his confession, contemporary Protestants might only add transcendent emotional experiences as necessary to tease and to sustain the devotion of the world. Even more, to accomplish our articulated aim of converting the world to Christianity, Christians like Israel have fallen prey to the practices decried by God through Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 16 again, beginning in verse 30. How feverish is your heart, declares the Lord. While you do all these things, the action is of a bold prostitute. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every public square, in spurning a prostitute's fee, you were not like a prostitute. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you give your gifts to all your lovers and lavish favors on them so that they will come to you from every direction for your obscene practices. So it is the opposite for you from those women in your obscene practices in that you are not approached for prostitution and in the fact that you pay a prostitute's fee and no fee is paid to you. So you are the opposite. 
Christians, too, have adorned ourselves with God's garments, enriched ourselves with God's blessings, and enticed the world with God's promises, all professed to be given freely and without requirement to those who come in and join us. Even more, we, too, have built churches at the center of every town and the head of every street, begging the world to come into us, and we've paid them to come. We've paid with professional artists and musicians, we've paid with polished and expert speakers, we've paid with family entertainments, and we've even paid by disregarding any passage of scripture or point of doctrine that might discourage any from entering. The people of God have returned to the days of Ezekiel, and we've done it all, so we claim, to fulfill God's commands to love our neighbors and to make disciples of all nations. This then brings us from Ezekiel to Revelation chapter 17 verses 1 through 13. Let's consider this passage in light of Ezekiel 16 in our discussion so far. Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of sexual immorality, and those who live on the earth became drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls, holding in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who live on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast, that he was, and is not, and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. The woman drunk with the blood of the saints and of the witnesses of Jesus, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, is the same as the harlot in Ezekiel. These are those who call themselves followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who Christians now recognize became flesh in the person of Jesus. And the beast on which she rides is twofold and yet one. The angel told John that the seven heads of the beast represented seven mountains upon which she sat. There were two cities of the ancient world purported to have sat on seven mountains, Jerusalem and Rome. Both were seats of power for those who claimed to worship the one true God. Even more, earlier in the book of Revelation, when John first saw a vision of Jesus, he saw Jesus holding seven stars. A few verses later, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus explained what they represented. He said, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Does this mean that the beast upon which she rides is the church? No, the beast is not the true community of those whose faith is in Jesus. It is a false kingdom. 
meant to substitute for the kingdom of God. The beast is the kingdom of ancient Babel, which in the book of Daniel took the forms of the Babylonian Empire, and then the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. Rome is its final permutation. But this kingdom is meant to supplant the kingdom of God. The church corporate mistook it for God's kingdom, wrote upon it, and used its values and its ways to entice the kings of the earth to bring their power and wealth into it, much as Israel had done prior to the Babylonian exile. By doing this, the community of faith became the harlot. A few verses later, in Revelation 17, verses 15 to 18, the angel reveals to John that the kings of the earth will eventually turn on the great prostitute. Revelation 17, beginning in verse 15, And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the prostitute and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. This consequence is akin to that which God sent upon ancient Israel as described by the prophet Ezekiel. And this consequence is being fulfilled now in our day as the world turns against the Christian religion, exposing the rot that once ruled over the nations of Europe and through Europe over the world. If this is true, and God's judgment is coming on the communities which call themselves Christian as it once did on ancient Israel, then what are we who wish to be faithful to do? As John the Baptist and Jesus preached, we must repent and turn from these abominations described in Ezekiel and in Revelation. Consequently, we must never again confuse the call to love our neighbors and to make disciples of all nations with the practice of enticing the worldly to follow Jesus through false or misleading claims about him or about discipleship to him. Perhaps we might receive instead an exhortation from the 18th century British reformer John Wesley in a sermon discussing Isaiah chapter 5 verse 4 in which Wesley explained what led to the formation of the first Methodist societies in England. He said the following, From the very beginning, from the time that four young men united together, each of them was homo unius libri, a man of one book. God taught them all to make his word a lantern unto their feet and a light in all their paths. They had one and only one rule of judgment with regard to all their tempers, words, and actions, namely, the oracles of God. They were one and all determined to be Bible Christians. They were continually reproached for this very thing, some terming them in derision Bible bigots, other Bible moths, feeding they said upon the Bible as moths do upon cloth. And indeed, unto this day, it is their constant endeavor to think and speak as the oracles of God. Today, Wesley is sometimes mischaracterized as making scripture, tradition, reason, and experience as equal sources of revelation. The 20th century Methodist scholar Albert Outler coined the phrase Wesleyan quadrilateral for the interplay between these sources for Wesleyan theology. Undoubtedly, tradition, reason, and experience cannot be dismissed in the interpretation of Scripture. All are brought to bear by any who read. However, as is clear from the quotation just cited, it was Scripture alone that drew Wesley's principal attention. Perhaps to Wesley's conviction might be added the voice of Martin Luther from two centuries prior. He wrote this in his book on the Babylonian captivity of the church. This feeble argument and no other is always at the tip of their tongue. And if you ask for scripture authority, they say, this is our opinion and the church has decided it thus. 
To such an extent do men who are reprobate concerning the faith and unworthy of belief dare to propose to us their own fancies under the authority of the church as articles of the faith. There is, however, very much to be said for my opinion. In the first place, this, that no violence ought to be done to the words of God, neither by man nor by angel, but that as far as possible they ought to be kept to their simplest meaning, and not to be taken, unless the circumstances manifestly compel us to do so, out of their grammatical and proper signification, that we may not give our adversaries any opportunity of evading the teachings of the whole scriptures. Though it saddens me to confess it, in many instances, those who truly wish to follow Jesus will likely need to leave the institutional church in order to, once again, become what Wesley called Bible Christians. Wesley himself never left the Anglican Church of his day. Instead, he began to lead small groups in which true followers of Jesus began to be discipled again by the prophets and apostles of Scripture. Where that is allowable, we might do the same. But where such is discouraged or prohibited, retreat will be necessary. Truly, wherever the practices of the prostitutes of Ezekiel and Revelation dominate, the Spirit of Christ cannot be present. Repent, people of God, for the kingdom of heaven draws near. May the Spirit of God himself lead you into repentance according to his wisdom and grace.